Hello, and welcome to the Institute of International Finance's newest podcast series, All About the Green, which will shine a spotlight on the exciting and rapidly evolving world of sustainable finance. We're your hosts, Sonia Gibbs and Greer Mizels, and we look forward to coming to you once a month with new perspectives and fresh insights. We are delighted to be here today with Deborah Lear, who is Executive Director and Vice Chair of the Paulson Institute. Deborah, thanks so much for being with us. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we have a lot of interesting topics to dive into today around the broad themes of China and sustainable finance or green finance, but maybe we could start, you could give us some big picture ideas on what exactly are China's broad goals in terms of environment and how is green finance being used as a policy tool to help achieve these goals? President Xi, when he became president, recognized very clearly that one of the biggest challenges that China faced was cleaning up its environment. And he's made that as one of his top priorities. And within that, they found that although they had very ambitious goals for what they wanted to achieve in trying to clean up the air and the water and the soil, it was going to be very difficult for the public sector to pay for it. Their estimates were that it would be up to a trillion dollars a year to try and meet these environmental goals and that the government really could only cover up to maybe 15% of those costs. So politically and economically, it was an imperative that they come up with innovative means to find the financing. And that really was the impetus behind his very ambitious agenda on green finance. Well, you know, that lack of financing in the public sector is not a problem unique to China, right? It's something that governments all over the world are facing. And They each seem to be taking a somewhat different approach to the issue by region and by country. But, you know, in the case of China, there's a pretty widespread perception that the approach to green finance is maybe quite different than what's going on elsewhere, for example, around the issues of defining a green taxonomy or what counts as green in the green bond context. I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, with China, often they take an idea and then they make it their own. And we have seen several different aspects from what's happening, say, in the United States or in Europe. One, obviously, because the political system is different. They can do things from the top down that we wouldn't necessarily do in other countries. And so they can command that a certain thing happen. They can command a consistent definition. Or in the case, as we've seen recently, they've even come up with different definitions around what is green. In the context of green bonds, where China is one of the leaders in the world in the issuance of green bonds, even though they've only been doing so for maybe three years, they have recently determined that green coal should not qualify as a green investment, joining the rest of the world in that. But they also issued a very ambitious catalog for promoting green goods and green services. And because energy and coal continue to make up at least 60% of their economy, in that context, they define clean coal as a green investment. So we do see a number of different considerations in what China is doing. We also see differences in their practices at home and their practices abroad. At home, they no longer invest in clean coal factories. Abroad, they continue to do so as part of the Belt and Road. That's been one of the programs that they've promoted. So there are pros and cons to the approach that China's taken. I think they've developed something they think is very uniquely theirs. We can see it in the context of the carbon market, for example, as they have 
commanded, again, industries to comply with certain standards that perhaps in the United States and the EU, they wouldn't be able to do the same thing. Yet it remains to be seen about whether it's going to be successful or not. You mentioned that sort of building out a carbon market and a carbon trading system as one of the market mechanisms China's using. And, you know, that's going to be the world's largest carbon trading market in 2020 when actual trading is slated to begin. But, you know, how did we get here? What's going to be the global impact of this very big development around carbon trading in China? It's a huge development. And of course, the one challenge always with China is when they decide to do something just because of their sheer size and the sheer numbers, often they really are the largest. And in the case of their national carbon market, they started with only one industry, power, and it covers about 6,000 companies, and already it's the largest in the world. They have had experiments going on in seven pilot projects over the last few years where they've been testing out their ideas and their standards. But the reality of all of this is it really is only a cash trade. It's really only a spot market trade. And even though they launched the national carbon market, it has yet to have a single trade. One of the challenges that they have had has been in getting reliable information out of the industries. When they first intended to launch it, it was going to cover seven industries, then it was down to three, then they only launched with one. It's been, I think, three years now since they had initially announced these intentions, and it really won't even start trading until 2020. Again, they are only likely to start with spot trading. There's been talk about launching a futures trading market on an experimental basis in Guangdong, but that's still only in the initial stages and hasn't been tested yet. So even though there's a lot of anticipation, we haven't seen the actual trading yet and what the impact is. But there's another important element, I think, in what China's trying to do because they have another part of their strategy when it comes to carbon. Through the Belt and Road Initiative, which they have been saying that they're going to try and make green, they are working with countries, starting in Southeast Asia and the Middle East, to help them in developing their own carbon markets. And because in many cases, the trading would be very thin on those markets, say in Vietnam or Abu Dhabi, What they're saying is if you can comply with Chinese standards, we'll allow you to trade on our national market. And in that way, they're really pushing out Chinese standards. And that could have quite an important impact on what carbon trading looks like globally, because the standards perhaps would not be up to the quality that we would expect coming out of the United States or out of the EU. Really interesting, uh, fostering the development of carbon markets along the Belt and Road, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere. But I guess probably only a small part of the much bigger entity that is the Belt and Road. So maybe we can talk about the Belt and Road a bit and how environmental sustainability is part of the considerations the Chinese are thinking about when they're moving ahead with this big initiative. The Chinese have a significant opportunity to be transformational in what happens in these 126 countries that are now part of the Belt and Road. And UNEP and Dr. Ma Jun's Institute at Tsinghua University came out with a study just last week where they looked at three different scenarios. And basically, if the status quo goes forward with the amount of infrastructure building along the Belt and Road and no changes are made, the impact of the carbon footprint is so significant that it's basically another China all over again. 
And so it's irrelevant what any of the rest of the world does if we don't address in the next seven years when the plans are being built and developed for this infrastructure. If we can't start to build in green buildings, green transportation, and other types of green infrastructure, we could be facing a significant challenge. Now, China has pledged that they are going to use various practices, including green lending practices, to try and encourage countries who are accepting this infrastructure development and support to make it green, but we've yet to see that happen in a significant way. The Paulson Institute has been working with Mahjong's organization and the City of London and others to raise awareness about a set of voluntary principles for lending along the Belt and Road to try and encourage financial institutions to abide by these principles just because we think it's going to have such a significant impact if we can't get that bill right. And when we look at all the development, I mean, if you take a place like Egypt, where they're building whole new cities and like China, a new capital. There's the potential of doing it right to make those buildings green, to make it sustainable. But if you don't, you have a built infrastructure that's going to be there for the next 30 years where you're going to have to invest significant amounts of money to go in and retrofit them to make them green. So much better to spend up front and get it right than have this big problem that we'll be facing if we have to go back and retrofit in the future, not to mention, obviously, the big impact that it would have on the climate. So it sounds like you're you're fairly hopeful that these principles for greening the Belt and Road, as I think they're they're called, will be taken quite seriously and have a good measure of success in being implemented. We are hoping that institutions will do that. We also look at it from another perspective as well. And the Paulson Institute has been working with state-owned enterprises and other organizations in China to try and look: can we address this from the other side? So as we looked at who is going to be doing the development along the Belt and Road, if you take, say, the six major categories of infrastructure development, if it's buildings and transportation and rail and power, in many cases, two to three Chinese state-owned enterprises account for, say, 60 to 70 percent of that development. And if you can work with those state-owned enterprises to get them to abide by certain practices, and you can work on the lending side as well, it will put pressure on those countries who might be hesitant maybe to invest in green. It puts pressure on them to make sure that their planning is also green when the infrastructure development is happening in their own country. So that's fascinating. You know, when you think about the Belt and Road Initiative in a larger context, it does seem clear that it's part of China's changing international role. Maybe you could talk about that and address some of the concerns. I think that Belt and Road Initiative is in large part a vehicle for sort of soft power for China. You're absolutely right, Sonia. I think a lot of people are concerned about what China's intentions are behind the Belt and Road. Certainly, it's been Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy initiative. He holds a summit every other year. Heads of state come from all along the Belt and Road to Beijing. He welcomes them on a big stage. It's a big production. And we don't see similar things like that, quite honestly, in the United States. And already we've seen a number of countries from Saudi Arabia to Egypt to countries in Latin America who are adjusting their own economic plans to try and attract Chinese investment and Chinese financing. And so in its own way, economically, politically, And socially, if they started to promote cultural exchanges and various other types of soft power, it's having an impact. And it's a topic that, while in the United States is very controversial, 
in many of these countries that we go to, it's very welcoming. You mentioned Chinese financing, and that kind of brings me to a topic I wanted to touch on that's something we do a lot of work on here at the IIF, which is debt sustainability. So there are concerns that a number of countries along the Belt and Road, these recipients of Chinese finance, have been in the position of taking on quite a lot of debt to the point where it becomes difficult to sustain. And when you have high debt levels, it also gets to the question of environmental sustainability. It's hard for governments in these countries to fund environmentally friendly development if they're struggling with high debt levels. Are you concerned about the impact of BRI-related lending on the fiscal positions of some of these countries? There has been a lot of discussion about this issue in the United States as we have looked at what China's lending practices have been in places like Pakistan, in major infrastructure builds. And even in talking to some of the lenders in China, there's huge concern because these are political loans by and large. They're not based on economic principles. They're long-term major infrastructure projects. And then the lending doesn't take into account political risk and various other kinds of risk that you would do in a more traditional type of loan. And the countries of which they're going into, as you said, are often very welcoming and maybe willing to accept higher levels of debt because they're so desperate for this kind of infrastructure development. Some of the concerns have been overblown. Recent studies have shown that actually the debt levels coming from China and the obligations are not what had been assumed when they actually went and started digging into this and looking at the facts. And ultimately, in these kinds of projects, China can't take the port away. It can be nationalized. And so these types of major infrastructure projects are going to stay in the country and the question is going to be, who's going to be the real loser out of this? Is it going to be Pakistan or is it going to be China when it comes down to a major decision? Fortunately, we haven't had to face any of those issues, but certainly countries should be cautioned and perhaps some criteria should be developed to look at this kind of lending and be able to measure it in countries where we are very concerned about the debt levels and finding a role for the major development banks and others to step in maybe to help mitigate some of that concern. Yeah, I think it's a topic that the G20 and the international financial institutions, World Bank, IMF, are going to be looking closely at in the context of this big overall global debt buildup. So we've been talking quite a bit about China, what's going on in China, Belt and Road. But why is this all important to the private financial sector, say the, the major financial communities in the U.S. and Europe? And um, you know, what are the implications for stakeholders in the global financial system? Well, I think there, in this case, there are opportunities and there are challenges. I think Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England, was one of the first high-level financial officials to really raise the alarm about concerns of climate risk and how that could have an impact on the insurance sector. If we continue to see these kinds of volatility and weather, what does that do for the financial sector and having to cover those kinds of costs and the risk that they have from climate disasters? The flip side is the opportunity. It can be an economic generator of jobs and opportunity. Goldman Sachs a few years ago, for example, did a study on what was the opportunity for environmental goods and services in China. And they estimate it could be a $1 trillion market if it continues to grow because there's need for waste management, for soil remediation, for solar, renewable energy. And we see this in many countries around the world. Again, just looking at the Middle East, if you take Saudi Arabia, you see their major push away from 
traditional types of energy. They want to have a renewable mix. They're investing a lot of money, and it's become a generator of economic growth. The good thing, and I think the important thing, is if we're going to address this for our climate to ensure that we continue to have the clean air and clean water and clean soil that we expect, we have to see that the private sector sees that there's an economic opportunity in it because it can't all be philanthropic investment. It's not sustainable. So if we want to make this trend sustainable, we have to find ways that the private sector benefits, not just suffers from it. So I think looking at if the WTO, for example, continues to push forward in reducing tariffs on environmental goods and services and pushing for this as a major trade opportunity, if the U.S. could take the lead in that, or they could partner with China, for example, in coming up with a program around no tariffs on environmental goods and the environmental goods trade, that could have a positive impact on economic growth. And this is one of the things, for example, that Hank Paulson, our chairman, cares very much about and talks about quite often with the Chinese leadership. You know, it, it's such an important point you raise. I mean, we tend to think of environmental and climate issues in terms of risks, right? So, for example, the central banks and supervisors network for greening the financial system, when they were looking across the policy landscape, it's a very important point to make that it's it's understanding both the risks and the opportunities that arise from climate and broader ESG types of factors we confront. But, you know, maybe we could sort of uh, wrap up a bit and you could look for a minute into your crystal ball and think about, you know, we're coming into a really busy autumn and, and thinking about sustainability. There's so much going on both in China and, and globally. What do you see are the key things to watch? For me, or at the Paulson Institute, we think one of the most important things that we need to have is a common understanding and definition of what is green. That really will unlock a lot of private capital because for investors, country to country, even institutions to institutions, there isn't a common understanding. And we see it trending in the right way as multinational banks are trying to come up with their definitions. We see the top-down approach from countries like China, and they are trying to unify their own definition. But that could have a significant impact. I think the trend overall is going in the right direction. We see the green bond market globally is up almost 50% already this year, which will have a significant impact. In the case of China, for example, they're starting to issue their first corporate green bonds. And hopefully it's no longer an issue that's considered philanthropy, but it really is becoming part of investment banks and other financial institutions' investment opportunities so that we see all across the board throughout that whole supply chain, if you would call it, that we see those firms like the Honeywells and the Dows who have major infrastructure projects, that they're considering how they can make them green and that they can attract the kind of capital to invest in doing so. Therefore, the products follow that make it green. And we see across the board, as you were saying earlier, this isn't just viewed as a risk, but it's viewed as an opportunity. And that's exactly what we're hearing from our members at the IIF all over the world. So good point to end on. Thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts with us, Deborah. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us today. You can find this and other episodes at www.iif.com and follow us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. We'll be back next month with more on sustainable finance. And in the meantime, remember, keep it green.